Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 8, Daniel chapters 2 and 3. Well, we're going to finish up Daniel chapter 2, finally, and get a little bit into chapter 3 today. Um, We're still examining King Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue that consists of four parts and each a different metal representing this series of empires. Now, although the Bible will more often than not refer to these empires as kingdoms, I'm going to switch back and forth between using the terms kingdom and empire because the mental picture that we're meant to have best fits the Western concept of an empire. And an empire is just a large land mass that consists of a composite mixture of nations and kingdoms, some small, some large, which have been conquered by a dominant power. Even though it's typical that these various nations and kingdoms that form the empire will have their own kings and governors over them, often the same king, in fact, that was in power when his kingdom was conquered, these potentates all give their allegiance to a central government of the empire. Now, please indulge me a little bit today, as I'm going to get academic and technical to begin today's lesson. I think it's needed, as it's going to add some necessary context to our study of Daniel. Now, it's important to remember... that the dream statue of Nebuchadnezzar represents a series of Gentile-controlled empires. The Aramaic language that these passages were written in, the language of the Gentile empire, reveals information that tells us that Gentiles will be in control over the earth for an indefinite time. And because the statue is of a human, and because the various metal portions morph one into the other, from gold to silver to bronze to iron, we're to see the statue as a whole. Therefore, what we have is one empire merely taking control of the previous one. It's not unlike a human development cycle in which a newborn human will go through many stages in its lifespan. We don't definitively end one stage, go to the next, essentially starting over and becoming a different person at each point. Rather, we flow from one stage into the next, usually growing larger, among other changes, that represents each stage of maturation. So each succeeding Gentile empire is not really a newly created one in the sense that it has never before existed. Rather, what's being represented is the stages of development of human history. That's what this statue is. And it is a development that is dominated by Gentile humans as opposed to to Hebrew humans. The world government is administered by Gentile kings and emperors. Now another thing we need to keep in mind 
as we go along is that there is a variety of theological viewpoints as to which empire we ought to assign to each of these four portions of the statue. And these viewpoints can be summed up in general into three categories that have been labeled amillennial, postmillennial, and premillennial. Now we studied these in some depth back in our second lesson on the book of Daniel and I'm not going to repeat it today. But the idea is that these three categories are born from Christian systematic theology and that each address the systematic theology subject of eschatology, which is the study of end times. If you have been a member of a Christian denomination, whether you know it or not, your denomination adhered to one or another of these three categories. And none of these categories are compatible with one another. But in addition to those three eschatological doctrinal viewpoints regarding the makeup of Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue, there's yet another viewpoint that is held by the so-called school of Bible criticism, which is the most prevalent line of scholarly thinking regarding the Bible for the past hundred years. The major difference between the viewpoints of Bible criticism and those of the amillennial, postmillennial, and premillennial Christian doctrines is that the Bible criticism viewpoint comes from a fundamental belief there are no such things as miracles, predictive prophecy, or the supernatural. Amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism all accept the possibility of miracles. All accept the idea of predicted prophecy. All accept the supernatural. So these three categories then arrive at their differing end times doctrines because other elements of their particular systematic theology essentially force them there. And the end result on insisting on designing a coherent theological system is that the scriptures have to be a little bit twisted, maybe turned, allegorized. Some passages are ignored. Others are given more weight. In some cases, passages are literally removed or added to the Bible to make it all work. But in modern times, it's become even more complicated because the premillennial category has been divided into two viewpoints called dispensational and historic premillennialism. I'm not going to get into the details on these. The point I'm making is this. Daniel has become the battleground for all of this. And over time, you have heard many different end times doctrines or sound bites of end times doctrines that supposedly come about due to the book of Daniel. And the reality is that many of these viewpoints were created to support the overall doctrinal creed of, one's denom- of one denomination or another in order to arrive at a predetermined agenda. Thus, what we're going to do in our study would seem like heresy to many Christian denominations. We're simply going to follow where the Scripture leads us. Then we're going to 
also look back into verifiable human history and see if and where the two ever connect. We're not going to be using any labels. We're not going to be adopting any denominational creed and I won't be teaching one end times doctrine over another even though no doubt you'll recognize some elements of whatever doctrines you've been introduced to up to this point in your life. Now we ended our last lesson by my pointing out that Daniel chapters 7 and 8 which of course we haven't gotten to just yet tell us of a couple of visions that Daniel had that was parallel to the one that King Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2. That is, while God used a, a dream of a human image made up of four metals to communicate the future to King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, later the Lord gave Daniel two visions of animals to represent the succession of future Gentile empires. Thus we can equate a band of metal with a certain animal. And the Lord even went so far as to tell us in Daniel chapter 8 that the ram with the two horns represented Median Persia while the shaggy goat represented Greece. So we have Daniel 2.38 tell us directly that the first and current empire was Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Then Daniel 8.20 tells us the next empire was Media Persia. And then Daniel 8.21 tells us that the following one was Greece. Pretty straightforward. And yet especially the modern Bible commentators who mostly align with the school of Bible criticism say that while it is true that the scriptures do tell us that fact Daniel has it wrong. Their reasoning since predictive prophecy doesn't exist it's impossible then the book of Daniel had to have been written around 165 BC, about four centuries after the Jews exiled to Babylon. And thus the four parts of the statue also had to be explained with only the empires that had already come and gone by 165 BC. So, the Bible criticism scholars decided that either the order of Gentile kingdoms of that statue was Assyria, Babylon, Media, Persia, then Greece, or, more commonly, that it was Babylon, then Media, then Persia, then Greece. In other words, the book of Daniel bore no truth to the matter at all. In fact, Bible criticism scholars say that the ancient and even modern historians are wrong in saying that there was no such thing as an empire of the Medes. That was a world power that that ruled by itself. They disagree that the only known empire involving the Medes was one that they co-ruled with Persia. And this is because unless they can somehow make this one unified media Persian empire into two, 
a Median Empire that later is followed by a Persian Empire, then their theory of world history and of when the book of Daniel was written falls apart. Now I reiterate that I choose to believe the Bible and that every reasonable proof is that Daniel was written in the 6th century BC, that it is accurate, and hindsight proves that it lines up squarely with verifiable history. Thus, we will merely accept the Holy Scriptures telling us forthrightly, without the need for allegory or interpretation, that the first empire, the head of gold, was Babylon. The second empire, the arms and chest of silver, was Media Persia. And the third empire, the belly and thighs of bronze, was Greece. Now there is no mention in Daniel of the Roman Empire by name as the fourth empire. And we have to be honest about that. However, the next empire to come into existence after Greece was the Roman Empire. That's an unassailable fact of history. And the symbolism of the statue with the legs of iron showing a definite division of the empire into two at some point precisely fits what happened with the Roman Empire. However, modern Bible critics can't accept that the fourth kingdom was Rome because their belief that Daniel was written in 165 BC doesn't allow it. Since Rome didn't take over the Greek Empire until 146 BC at the earliest. And of course, even if one accepted the date of 165 BC as the date of authorship of Daniel, which has no empirical evidence to back it up, by the way, 146 is still 20 years in the future. And the writer of Daniel, they say, couldn't possibly know the future. Now I hope this brief preface to begin today's lesson helps you understand what a serious Bible student faces in modern times when we endeavor to examine Holy Scripture. And, and we try to untangle systematic theology and especially the matter of systematic eschatology. It, it, it's a loaded game that makes arriving at whatever truth God has made knowable to us quite difficult to apprehend because if one chooses to believe the word of God as it is given and to examine it in its ancient Hebrew context then one is often labeled a kook or a heretic or a member of a cult because it doesn't agree with most denominational systematic theologies or with the views of modern Bible commentators, most of whom are from the Bible criticism school. So with that, let's reread a short portion of, of Daniel chapter 2. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to start reading at verse 40, so if you have a complete Jewish Bible, that's page 1100. 1100. We'll start reading at verse 40. The fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron. And iron can break anything into pieces, pulverize it and crush it. So just as iron can crush anything, this kingdom will break the other kingdoms into pieces and crush them. 
Finally, you saw the feet and the toes made partly of pottery clay and partly of iron. This will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the firmness of iron, since you saw the iron mixed with clay from the ground. Just as the toes of the feet were part iron and part clay, this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. That means that they will cement their alliances by intermarriages, but they won't stick together any more than iron blends with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not pass into the hands of another people. It will break to pieces and consume all of those kingdoms, but it itself will stand forever. Like the stone you saw, which without human hands separated itself from the mountain and broke to pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has revealed to the king what will come about in the future. The dream is true. Its interpretation is reliable. And then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and worshipped Daniel. He ordered that a grain offering and incense be offered to him. And to Daniel the king said, Your God is indeed the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets since you have been able to reveal this secret. And the king promoted Daniel to a high rank, gave him many rich gifts, made him governor of the entire province of Babel, head of all the sages of Babel. And at Daniel's request, the king put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in charge of the heirs of the province of Babel, while Daniel remained in attendance on the king. What we can know of the fourth empire of iron is that the largest it was the largest and most powerful of them all and it can destroy at will we also see in the statue image that it's that it's the legs that are made of iron but as we move down towards the feet and toes the iron doesn't change to another metal but rather it starts to have clay added to it. So it forms a mixture that we discussed last time. It's an unstable mixture because iron and clay don't combine. Rather, the iron particles just become suspended in the clay. And further, while the fourth empire is divided into two, as symbolized by the legs and the feet, it eventually divides even further, as symbolized by the ten toes. Now, let's address right here the issue of the ten toes made of iron and clay. First, there are those who say that the number ten cannot be assumed because nowhere do the Daniel passages refer to the feet as having ten toes. But in my opinion, that's a red herring. The statue is decidedly human bearing every other human attribute. To think that the number of toes has to be specifically called out as ten isn't reasonable. I mean, after all, when the scriptures speak of the arms and legs of the statue, we're not told it has two arms and two legs. There seems to be no academic controversy over that. It goes without saying that since the image was human, there'd be two of each of those. So I think we can safely assume that the number of toes were ten. However, does ten toes mean that this empire, Roman or not, 
will eventually divide into precisely ten parts governed by ten kings. Not necessarily. Biblically speaking, the number ten is the number of completeness. But on the other hand, it's often used in the Bible as a round number as opposed to a precise number. Ten could merely be a representative number that indicates there will be several parts of this empire, each governed mostly independently as time marches on. Now we must remain aware that this passage is written in a Gentile language, Aramaic, about a Gentile statue representing four Gentile kingdoms and this dream statue was designated or rather designed by the Lord to be in terms that this Gentile king could comprehend it. And the Babylonians, so far as we know, didn't have the same symbolic interpretation of the number 10 that the Hebrews did. Yet it certainly can't be ruled out that indeed the 10 toes means that the empire, probably the Roman Empire, will become divided into exactly ten smaller kingdoms. So we're just going to have to leave this matter of the number of toes and kings and kingdoms until we get a little bit more information. Now verse 43, take a look at it. It's very much worth looking at more closely. Now the complete Jewish Bible, as does most other popular Bible translations, say that the iron mixed with clay means that alliances by intermarriage will occur to form this iron and clay mixture. And intermarriage by definition means marriages between people of unlike societies. For instance, no one would speak of marriage among Jews as intermarriage, but rather just as marriage. However, this is not what the Hebrew Scriptures say. Rather, the words are, they shall mingle themselves by Zerah Enosh. Those Aramaic words translate to seed of men. They shall mingle themselves by the seed of men. Now, the end result probably is intermarriage. But to those who have studied the Torah, an important piece of information gets provided when we study this Daniel verse in the more literal translation because we are told in the law of Moses that seeds of two or more varieties are not to be planted in the same field. To mix seeds of different species is forbidden. The mixing of seeds, different seeds, on the same piece of land is, says the Lord, an illicit mixture. And we are taught that an illicit mixing of anything prohibited by God creates tevel, confusion. So this mixing of clay and iron brought about by the mixing of the seeds of men is speaking of an illicit mixture, a prohibited mixing, and it is symbolic of the mixing of people 
who ought not to be mixed. And the end result is confusion. And it is this confusion that leads to chaos that creates the conditions for the downfall of this fourth empire. Now to be quite clear, this is not referring to a mixing of races as we would think of it today. Rather, this is referring to a mixing of various nations and cultures and societies. It could even mean a mixing of weak nations with strong nations, as we've seen recently with the European Union. Or perhaps like we see happening in the West, a mixing of Islamic cultures with their unique, backward, and often opposite values with those cultures based on traditional Judeo-Christian foundations. And this kind of mixing that is today hailed by secular humanists as politically correct diversity has become quite problematic in the West. And indeed, it could be the harbinger of the chaos and societal failure that this prophecy is predicting. But that's just my speculation. Now, things really start to get interesting. As verse 43 makes a bold prediction that is that it is in the days of those kings, those toes made of clay and iron, that what is about to be described by Daniel happens. And what happens is obviously messianic in nature. And it is therefore for part of the Ahrit Hayamim, the latter days scenario. But as we discussed at length, hindsight, and especially the book of Revelation, help us to discover that there are two sets of latter days. The first latter days is associated with the birth and the subsequent crucifixion of Christ. The second latter days is associated with his future return after living for centuries at the right hand of God in heaven. So which latter days is verse 43 speaking to? Because it states that by divine intervention God himself will set up a kingdom entirely different in every way from the one represented by the Gentile dream statue. And this divine kingdom will never end. And once it's established, unlike the series of four Gentile empires that pass from one people to another, this kingdom will never pass from the ruler and the people who initiate it. The evangelical Christian view today that's been made popular mostly by Hal Lindsey and Chuck Smith and Tim LaHaye is that this passage is speaking of the second latter days and not the first. Therefore they say there must be a revived Roman Empire first before this messianic kingdom of God can be established. And in fact, they say that we are watching that revived Roman Empire forming now in our time. But other scholars such as Edward J. Young say that's untenable. He says that we're not expressly told that the statue has ten toes. 
So we can't assume or associate them with the ten kings of Daniel 7. And besides, the stone not quarried by human hands then, uh, that strikes and demolishes the statue is said to hit the statue's feet and not the toes. Therefore, the only possible conclusion is that the kings of this Daniel chapter 2 passage have to be kings not of a revived Roman Empire, but of the ancient historic Roman Empire. Well, can we find some way to reconcile these two distinctly opposite views? Or is the one right and the other wrong, even though they're both based on sound scriptural evidence? Before we get to that, I want to look at verse 45 that tells us a little more about this mysterious stone that's cut out without human hands, the one that destroys this succession of four Gentile empires. Now generally, without much theological disagreement, this stone is identified as Yeshua, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Thus this destruction of the Gentile-controlled world empires marks that moment of the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth and it is, of course, accomplished by God's Messiah. In fact, an interesting tidbit is that when we're told where that stone was quarried from, Unlike many Bible versions that say it was from a mountain, in fact, it is the definite article used in Aramaic. So it is from the mountain, not a mountain. Not just any generic mountain, but the stone is cut from a very specific mountain called the mountain. It must be speaking of the mountain of Zion probably Mount Moriah. And this conclusion is warranted because we read this in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is the word that Yeshiao, Isaiah, the son of Amot, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the Acherit Hayamim, the latter days, the mountain of Adonai's house will be established as the most important mountain it will be regarded more highly than the other hills and all the Goyim, the Gentile nations, will stream there. Many peoples will go and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of Adonai, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways and we will walk in his paths for out of Zion will go forth Torah, the word of Adonai from Jerusalem. So see, this passage from Isaiah establishes just what the mountain is speaking about. It's the mountain of Zion, Mount Moriah. But here's where our understanding of the three categories of systematic eschatology also pops up again. Premillennialists see this event of the Messianic stone cut from the mountain of Zion, smashing the Gentile world empire and destroying it, and setting up the kingdom of God as being fulfilled in Messiah's second coming, an event future to us, as they say, the ten toes do equate to the ten kings of a revived Roman empire. But amillennialists and postmillennialists, well, they say that event has already been fulfilled 
at Messiah's first coming. And therefore the kingdom of God's already established on earth. And further that the Gentile Christian church, to the exclusion of all Israel and of the Jewish people, are the exclusive people of this kingdom. Therefore the concept of replacement theology has its roots here. The church and the kingdom of God are one and the same, established upon the first advent of Christ, they say. Now let me be clear. The amillennial and postmillennial position is that the stone in Nebuchadnezzar's dream has already struck and destroyed the four Gentile empires. This is sometimes known in Christianese as the kingdom now theology. And part of this theology is that the victory is already complete. And it's now up to the Christian church to keep perfecting this world until it is pure and clean and only then does the Messiah come to take over this already established and purified kingdom of God. Now I'm not going to engage today in the rightness or wrongness of any of these end times theological doctrines. My purpose for today, for now, is merely to explain the differing positions and why they each believe what they believe. Further, through Daniel chapter 2, we simply don't have enough information yet to draw very much in the way of conclusions. So to be true to our method of study, by simply taking the scriptures for what they say, and not adding or subtracting or allegorizing, we're going to leave this growing bundle of mysteries for now, and we're going to move on. Now let's remember that all that we've been discussing is within the context of Daniel standing before King Nebuchadnezzar as he interprets this king's troublesome dream. And he concludes by saying that without equivocation the dream is of real events of the future that will happen and the interpretation is 100% accurate. The king can take it to the bank. To say that Nebuchadnezzar was impressed is an understatement. The king was dumbfounded. He was so in awe at the accuracy and the authority of Daniel's pronouncement that he literally prostrated himself at Daniel's feet and worshipped him. He also pronounced that Daniel's God is indeed the God of gods and Lord over all kings. And he gave Daniel and his three Jewish comrades high positions in the Babylonian government. Now this gives me an opportunity to explain something about how the oriental mind thought about the world of the gods and how the gods interacted with humans in that era. By no means was Nebuchadnezzar's pronouncement concerning the God of Israel a statement of monotheism, nor that the king had dumped his gods in favor of Jehovah. Rather, at best, he elevated Jehovah to the position of the chief god of the Babylonian kingdom, the El, the highest god of the many gods. 
Nebuchadnezzar still worshipped his traditional Babylonian gods and goddesses, but he recognized for the moment anyway the superiority of the God of the Jews at least as it involves revealing mysterious secrets. But on the other hand, obviously from a war standpoint, Babylonia's gods were superior to the Jews' god because Babylonia was the victor. The Jews were the captor. See, it was no problem for the Middle Eastern mind to accept that not only one's own personal gods, but also one's own national gods existed, and they all played a role in their life. And further, they had no problem accepting that other people had their own personal gods, and other nations had their own set of national gods. See, this wasn't tolerance. This was just reality to them. But just like in the modern world, where a nation's power and status will ebb and flow, but that nation continues to exist, so it was with the gods. The power and status of the various gods changed, but that didn't cease to exist, nor did they lose their power. The pecking order of the gods just got reshuffled from time to time. For the moment, Nebuchadnezzar honored Israel's God as the El, the highest God. Let's move on to Daniel chapter 3. Now we're going to read it all. It's a long chapter, but we'll only spend a few minutes in it to, to close out today. Daniel chapter 3, starting on page 1101, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Nebuchadnezzar the king had a gold statue made, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, which he set up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babel. And then Nebuchadnezzar the king summoned the viceroys, prefects, governors, judges, treasurers, counselors, sheriffs, all the provincial officials to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And the viceroys and the prefects and the governors and the judges and the treasurers and the counselors and the sheriffs and all the provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the statue which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood in front of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up and the herald proclaimed, Peoples, nations, languages, you are ordered that when you hear the sound of the horn and the pipe and the harp and the zither and the lute and the bagpipe and the rest of the musical instruments, you are to fall down and worship the gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship is to be immediately thrown into a blazing hot furnace. Therefore, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn and the pipe and the harp and the zither and the lute and the rest of the musical instruments, all the peoples and nations and languages fell down and worshipped the gold statue that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. But then some Chazdim, some Chaldeans, approached and began denouncing the Jews. They said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, May the king live forever. Your majesty, you have ordered that everyone who hears the sound of the horn and the pipe and the harp and the zither and the lute and the bagpipe and the rest of the musical instruments is to fall down and worship the gold statue 
that whoever does not fall down and worship is to be thrown into a blazing hot furnace. Well, there are some Jews whom you have put in charge of the affairs of the province of Babel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, your majesty, have paid no attention to you. They do not serve your gods, and they do not worship the gold statue you set up. In a raging fury, Nebuchadnezzar ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And when the men had been brought before the king, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, is it true that you neither serve my gods nor worship the gold statue I set up? All right then. If you are prepared, when you hear the sound of the horn and the pipe and the harp and the zither and the lute and the bagpipe and the rest of the musical instruments to fall down and worship the gold statue, very well. But if you won't worship, you will immediately be thrown into a blazing hot furnace. And what God will save you from my power then? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king. Your question doesn't require an answer from us. Your Majesty, if our God whom we serve is able to save us, he will save us from the blazing hot furnace and from your power. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, Your Majesty, that we will neither serve your gods nor worship the gold statue which you set up. And Nebuchadnezzar became so utterly enraged that his face was distorted with anger against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace made seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing hot furnace. So these men were tied up in their cloaks and tunics and robes and other clothes and thrown into the blazing hot furnace. And the king's order was so urgent and the furnace so overheated that the men carrying Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were burned to death by the flames. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the blazing hot furnace. But suddenly Nebuchadnezzar sprang to his feet. Alarmed, he asked his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the flames? And they answered the king, yes, of course, your majesty. But he claimed, look, I see four men not tied up, walking around there in the flames, unhurt, and the fourth looks like one of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar approached the opening of the blazing hot furnace and said, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you servants of El Elyon, come out, come out here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego emerged from the flames and the viceroys and the prefects and the governors and royal advisors who were there saw that the fire had no power on the bodies of these men. Not even their hair was singed. Their clothes looked the same. They didn't even smell of fire. And Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to deliver his servants who trusted in him. They defied the royal order to the point of being willing to give up their bodies in order not to serve or worship any god but their own god. Therefore I herewith decree that anyone no matter from which people, nation, or language, who says anything to insult the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is to be torn limb from limb. His house is to be reduced to rubble because there is no other God who can save like this. And then the king gave Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego higher rank in the province of Babel. And the following letter was sent out. From Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and languages living throughout the earth. Shalom Rav, abundant peace. I am pleased to recount the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. 
How great are His signs. How powerful His wonders. His kingdom lasts forever and He rules all generations. Let me first remind you that this chapter, like the previous one, is written in Aramaic. So it is being addressed to, and it concerns primarily, Gentiles. Second, let me remind you that this is all about the historical succession of Gentile world empires. And the story about this golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar had constructed has to be taken with that context in mind. Now we don't know exactly at what point in the king's reign that he had the statue built and erected. The Greek Septuagint has added words to it that says that it happened in the 18th year of his reign. And apparently the editors of the Septuagint thought that this business with this huge golden statue was somehow connected with Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of Jerusalem. But there's no evidence of these two events being connected and it's only the opinion of an ancient editor of the Septuagint. Now we aren't told very much about the nature of the statue. However, it was of enormous size. 60 cubits in height. That puts it somewhere around 90 to 100 feet tall. Now saying it was made of gold in no way means it was solid gold. Rather it was constructed of stone or something else and then it was overlaid with gold plates. However, that in itself would have been horrifically costly. The location given in the scriptures is inexact. It says it's in the plain of Dura in the province of Babel. Now there's good reason to think, however, that the location of the statue has been discovered. The archaeologist Opert found a large rectangular brick structure over 20 feet in height that in his view could only be the pedestal and foundation for a gigantic monument or a statue. About 12 miles south-southeast south, south, south of Hila was this place lo, known locally as Tolul Dura, the mounds of Dura. Now Bible critics say that the mention of this statue is just more evidence that Daniel is pure fantasy. And that's because not only is the statue so illogically huge, but that its proportions are all wrong. It can't possibly work. We're told in the Tanakh that the statue was 60 cubits tall and 6 cubits wide, which is a 10 to 1 ratio. And that, says the Bible critics, is simply unworkable. Well, perhaps they need to travel to Washington, D.C., and visit the Washington Monument. It is 555 feet high and precisely 55 feet wide at its base. A 10 to 1 ratio. However, it is probable that the gold statue of chapter 3 was 62 cubits tall, including its pedestal, which was around 15 cubits high, meaning the actual image itself was more like 45 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, which is a 7.5 to 1 ratio. Now, was this golden statue 
meant as a physical representation of the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Was it a stylized image of the king made to aggrandize himself? We're not told. And no amount of speculation is going to determine the truth. The issue we need to focus on instead is its intended purpose. Verse 2 explains that not that uh, everybody that was anybody in the Babylonian government was commanded not to only come to this dedication ceremony, but to bow down to that statue. They did so. And as they stood there, verse 4 says that a herald shouted, People! Nations! Languages! When you hear the music start, you must stop whatever you are doing and bow down to the golden image. And whoever doesn't will be thrown into a fiery furnace for execution. Well, the use of the Aramaic words Am, people, Uma, nations, and Lishan, languages or tongues, is to make the point that every last person who lived for whatever reason in the Babylonian Empire was to show respect to this image. The question then, was the point that the image was a god and everyone was to worship this god? That all who lived in the empire, no matter their own god system, was to worship this particular god? Was this an issue of religion? Maybe even religious persecution? Uh, The answer is probably yes and no. The image was not an idol of a certain god per se, but here's the key. It was the symbol of the world power that was Babylon. Thus, everyone in Babylon was to bow down before the symbol of the government that held sway over the world, at least from the Middle Eastern viewpoint. However, because of the way that gods were viewed in relation to kings and nations, there was a theocratic element involved. See, to worship the government and the power of Babylon was to worship the king of Babylon. And to worship the king of Babylon was to worship the god of Babylon. All of these things were inseparable. Thus, the gist of the issue of what happens to people who refuse to bow down to the 90-foot tall statue, they get burned up in a furnace, has to do with a refusal to declare loyalty on every level, secular and religious, to the Gentile world power. The one world government that is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. To refuse to bow down is treason. The penalty is death. And the reality is, it wouldn't really have bothered most of the nations and peoples who formed Babylon to do so. Because they were not being asked to give up or to replace their gods. And it wouldn't upset their gods for them to bow down to yet another god because that was usual and customary. The people would merely be acknowledging 
that the power of the Babylonian gods was mightier than the power of their own personal and national gods. And this was already a well-established fact by means of their subjugation to Babylon. But for the Jews, for the Jews, it was another matter. It was a grave matter. For they were obligated to acknowledge one God and one God alone. To do otherwise was unfaithfulness to their own God, Jehovah. Now we have a problem. And we're going to explore that problem more next time.